Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. If you open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5, as we continue our series, The Hard Sayings of Jesus. Before we turn our attention to the Word, I do want to pray that I had an opportunity, one of my closest friends from high school actually went on to get his doctorate. He's actually the director of the Humane Society for Napa County, but he sent me an email just a day or so ago. His son-in-law is actually trapped in Ukraine along with their family, and I want to lift them up. They actually own a bakery there, and they said they're going to keep baking bread until they run out of flour, but the Russian troops are just outside of the city that they're in, and they've been getting shelled for the last couple of days. So if you join me, we'll pray. Very common situation all over Ukraine. And we should pray that the Lord would end this senseless violence. Father, we lift up Anatoly and his family to you. and Lord, we just ask that your mercy would fall down like rain upon that nation. And Lord, that you'd bring an end to this conflict. Lord, we're not desiring to take a political stance. We just know that you abhor violence. God, that it's senseless. And we would pray that you'd sustain the innocent, Lord, wherever they are. God, that you would protect those whose lives are in danger even right now. And God, grant our president and our Congress wisdom as to what we would do as a nation to aid and to help. We pray for those that are in harm's way even now, that you would shield them, God, that miraculously you would use this for your glory and for your purposes, that many would come to faith in Christ. As we turn our attention now to your word, Lord, speak to us as your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 44. One that is really a hard saying, love your enemies. The very statement, love your enemies, is at conflict with most of us. Most of us would say, how do you even do that? How is that even possible? How is it that we could even think about loving someone? who would persecute us. And yet, this particular statement, Jesus not only says here in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes ultimately, but he goes on to elaborate on this numerous times as he speaks to people. Because the substance of this very hard saying is found in the fact that God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son, that you might spend eternity in heaven because you have believed on Jesus who gave his life for you while you were still an enemy of him. 
It's the substance of the gospel. This truth is embedded in who God actually is. Because we, without Christ, are God's enemies. And so the Lord speaks this truth to a group of Pharisees. He says there in verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. At first glance, you're looking at that going, sorry, it's just not going to happen. Our human relationships very often, even in the body of Christ, are not governed by the Spirit of God. We allow the enemy to creep in and say, well, you know, I have a right to hate that person. I have a right to think this way. I've, I've been abused. I've been harmed. I've been hurt. And while it is true that your emotions are real, and while it is true that that dislike is legitimate, the question is, what are you as a believer going to do with it? More importantly, how would Jesus have us respond to those who have hurt us or who hate us? The truth of the matter is, the Pharisees had turned hatred into some kind of a value that they thought God was for. And the truth of the matter is, the Bible absolutely nowhere, not in a single verse, says that we are to hate our enemies. Repeated over and over again, how we're to respond to people with whom we disagree Probably many of you remember when Jesus was speaking to the same group of Pharisees in Luke's gospel. He told a parable. And the parable that he told was in response to what the Pharisees actually had said. Because the issue was this issue. Well, what do we do when we disagree with people? Somebody does something to us. How should we respond? And so their question was, who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? If I'm supposed to be good to my neighbor, well, let's define the word neighbor by my definition. And so to the Pharisees, the neighbor turned into somebody that you like. The neighbor was somebody that you agree with. The neighbor was someone that was of your race. The neighbor was somebody that you actually benefited from. The neighbor was someone who consistently did something good to you, and so you did something good back to them. But Jesus illustrated this point by speaking to them the parable of the Good Samaritan. These were Pharisees and scribes that asked this question, and the Pharisees and scribes hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans were a representation of the onslaught of the Assyrian army as the Assyrians had attacked the Jewish people and taken them captive and killed off the men and impregnated the women, the children born from those illicit relationships between the Assyrian army and subjugated Jewish women were Samaritans. And Jesus said, as the Levite goes by, and as the priest goes by, 
who do you suppose actually did the right thing? It was the good Samaritan. Didn't matter that they had a different view. Jesus said, you want to know how you can tell real love? Real love works. Real love actually does something with what it claims to believe. It's natural for us to have those feelings when people hurt us. That's not the problem. The problem is what do you do with it when you have those feelings? Because those feelings, when they go awry, turn into all kinds of very, very painful experiences that have plagued this world since the time of Adam and Eve. Goes all the way back to Cain and Abel, doesn't it? A little bit of hatred between two brothers and one brother dies. God knows these things. And so he speaks to us. You might be thinking to yourself right now, are you kidding me? Come on, turn the other cheek. That I just can't do it. Can I just tell you, in, in my flesh, I agree with what your flesh agrees with, and that is, no, in my flesh, I can't do it either. But by the Spirit of the living God dwelling in me, I absolutely can love those who have hurt me. Those who've used me. A way to illustrate this, just a simple story, it kind of shows you the difference between some world religions. A man's lost. He's trapped. He's fell into a pit of quicksand and Confucius comes by, sees the man's predicament. And his response is, it's evident that man should stay out of places like this. Well, that'd be one way to look at it. Next up, Buddha stops by, sees the man in the quicksand, observes the situation and says, let the man's plight be a lesson to the rest of the world. There's also a little bit of truth to that, isn't there? Muhammad happens by, looks at the man, and says, alas, this must be the will of Allah. Otherwise, the man wouldn't be there. And finally, Jesus steps into the same scene and simply reaches down and says, take my hand. Let's get out of this mess. That is the difference between a person who believes in Jesus Christ and virtually any other world religion. Real love actually reaches out to people who are hurting. Amen? That's what it does. You can talk about love all day long, but love is defined by what you do with what you claim. Very few people are going to believe simply your words. They're going to believe what you do with what you say. And that's actually one of the chief problems we have in the world. Because love is an act of the human will. Always has been, always will be. If you declare your undying love to somebody, walk up to them and punch them in the face, they're not going to believe that you love them, amen? They're going to believe what you did. They're not going to believe a word of what you said. And that might be an extreme example, but it's very true. 
Sometimes those punches come in the form of words, don't they? Sometimes those punches come in the form of dismissal, rejection, hatred, unkindness, mean-spiritedness. There's lots of ways to harm other people. If you really have the love that God has for you, then those things are no longer a weapon that you're supposed to wield. You're supposed to resort to what Christ did for you and what Christ has done for me. For context's sake, verse 43, and let's look at this passage now in its context. You have heard that it was said. Now, who said that? Jesus is speaking here was actually not the Bible. It was the Pharisees. It was the Sadducees. It was the scribes. They had come up with You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The Bible actually just says you shall love your neighbor. It doesn't say you shall hate your enemies. That's that little tiny distance between true biblical instruction and adding to what the word of God actually says. The Bible doesn't say hate, but it's it's just three words. And it changes the whole context. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, and do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? For even the tax collector do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? And therefore you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And we covered this one just a couple of weeks ago. The goal of the body of Christ is to become as much like Jesus as we possibly can. That includes loving the way he loves, doesn't it? being as he is in this world. And so the truth of the matter is, if you look back at the book of Exodus, as the Jewish people are receiving the laws, Moses is authoring this book, and he's expounding on how they were supposed to live amongst the heathen people of this earth. It says in Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, You shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. Now, if you're supposed to be good to your neighbor's, your enemy's donkey, how much more so do you think you're supposed to be good to people? Get the picture here. This is an instruction about a much less significant thing. He says, you you need to help your neighbor's donkey. Now, maybe your neighbor is a donkey in your eyes. I, I don't know. Maybe you have one of those neighbors. So if your neighbor's a donkey, the Bible says you're supposed to help your neighbor who's a donkey. Why am I saying that? Because sometimes 
we divest ourselves from the deepest truths of Scripture because they're hard. Well, it's impossible. I can't do that. I won't do that. The truth of the matter is, in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writing to the church, verse 6, For when we were still without strength, before you met Jesus, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who did Jesus die for? The Bible is very specific. He died for the ungodly. That's the whole purpose of his death. Jesus, in that sense, didn't die for the church. He died to make ungodly people the church. We forget that sometimes. We forget from whence we have come, don't we? It's like, oh, I wasn't always the way I am today. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God, here it is, verse 8, demonstrates his love toward us that while we were still sinners, ungodly, Christ died for us. Jesus died for you while you were his enemy. I don't know what else you can do to tell somebody you love them than to give your life. That's why Jesus said, greater love hath no one than this, and he laid down his life for his friend. But Jesus did it for his enemies. While we were still barking orders at God, saying, I'm not going to do it your way, Jesus is saying, but I'm still going to die for you. Love your enemies. There are so many things when you think about it. This is really mature Christian love, isn't it? When somebody does this, you look at it and go, man, there's something going on in that person's life. It's clearly God's way. The Bible is replete with information that tells us that God wants us to love without reservation all people, including people that we don't like. And you're going, well, I don't want to do that. That's why it is only God that can enable you to do that. Because you, your flesh is going, uh-uh, not happening. You want to know a secret? When you start doing good to people who have hurt you, it blows their mind. It makes them nuts. They'll, I, I have said every mean-spirited thing I can say to that person, and they still are trying to win me to Jesus. It freaks them out. The Apostle Paul said it's as if you were heaping coals on their head when you do good to someone. It's like they don't know what to do with it. Here's what happens. Here's the result. And this works in your marriage. It works with your kids. They have to come to terms with their part in the broken relationship because it's no longer on you. You're loving the unlovable. But if you try and return evil for evil, then they continue to have an excuse. But the moment you say, I will no longer live my life like that, you cause them to have to come to terms with themselves. They're stuck with just them and God. It is an are you kidding me moment. As you start to define real love, 
Jesus actually said that the law and the prophets depend on this type of love. Why? Because it's the only thing that could put Jesus on the cross. Amen? So the law and the prophets, as the prophets were speaking forth these truths that were also impossible for man to keep, when they come to fruition in Jesus Christ, what did Jesus actually do to bring it to pass? He died for the ungodly. He died for people that were not yet saved. There was a time when Peter was not Saint Peter. Amen? And even after Peter was Saint Peter, he was actually not Saint Peter. He was kind of Peter foot and mouth. Peter not so bright. Peter, oops, messed that one up. You see, when you start to define real love, and you start to look at who your neighbor is, You're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself if your neighbor is actually supposed to be taken care of all the way down to his farm animals. Then you're probably supposed to take care of your neighbor who's not nice. Now let's be really clear. That's not easy. That's hard. It's hard to open yourself up to that place where someone who has hurt you previously might be able to hurt you again. That's one of the struggles that we have in our world right now. We have compounded hatred upon hatred, and that hatred grows to where it is the only thing visible in people's lives. And God's saying the only answer to that is to put that hatred away and you start loving people who have used you. That doesn't mean standing around while they punch you in the face again. Let's be really clear here. That means that you speak love into their life while they're speaking evil against you. The reason that that is so important, church, is it's the only thing that can actually change their trajectory. You can always come up with a reason to punch somebody back. Do evil for evil. The Bible is clear. Do not repay evil for evil, but overcome evil by doing good. For vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. You can trust God with that retribution. That's not your place. You're not good at it, by the way. And you're certainly not righteous at it. You ever noticed how that often the measure of repaying someone for something done to them actually exceeds the initial wrong that was done? I'm not just going to get back at them. I'm going to get back at them and I'm going to give them a little extra so they don't think about doing it again. Does that ever work? It doesn't ever work. It may set aside that fight for a time because the person thinks that superior firepower lives on one side of the equation versus the other, but it never actually solves the problem. You can see that clearly in our world, can't you? That's the problem that we actually face in this country right now. We are so divided and so hate-filled that we're allowing that hate to be the voice with which we speak as a culture. And until the love of God, which constrains us from doing what is beneficial for me and does what's beneficial for you, until that love comes out of the church and the world gets that part of the equation, things are not going to change. You'll just have a new ruling group. You'll have a new power-filled group of people. 
One of the things that's going on in Russia, and you're seeing it now, it's being exposed, is the fact that Russia is an oligarchy. It has ruling classes of people, and those people are fabulously wealthy, and they're expressing all of their anger and angst on a very large group of people that doesn't control a thing. So you would think, well, if you had everything, you'd be nice. No, if you have everything, you actually end up being more evil than the person who has nothing. That's the way it usually goes, because you can't satiate the human condition by just simply adding more stuff or being more right or having more power. There's no end to it. And so Jesus begins to put into practice with his words the way he wants us to live. The first commandment was to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Do you remember what the second part, the second part of the great commandment is? It's to love your neighbor as yourself. How many of you in here, and and I want you to just think about it from the standpoint of you as a person, does anybody in here not love themselves? I think we all love ourselves, don't we? I can prove that to you, by the way. Every time you look at those high school yearbooks, who do you look for first? (laughs) Come on, confess it. You know exactly what pages you are in the yearbook, right? You're looking for yourself. Now, maybe that's an extreme one for many of you. But the truth of the matter is, we do care for ourselves. We, we want to go to the restaurant we want to go to. We want to have what we want to have. We want to pick where we're going to go on vacation. We want to have the right job. We want to have the right amount of money. We're concerned about ourselves. You're supposed to take that same concern. You're supposed to love your neighbor. And in this case, your neighbor might actually not like you. But that's not in the equation. The equation is you're supposed to love your neighbor even if your neighbor doesn't love you back. So you are to care for your neighbor the way you care for yourself in spite of the fact that your neighbor hasn't done that to you. It's transformative truth, church. Why is that? Because you'll see these five things as we wrap this passage up. You're going to love the unlovable. And that is not easy for anyone. And remember that the word that's being used here is not three of the four common words that are used in the Greek language, which the Bible was translated from. It isn't that you're supposed to love as in be physically attracted to that person. It isn't that it's simply the love of family, because we all have family. Let's face it, we love our family, but sometimes we don't like our family. Amen? You don't get to pick and choose it. I think everyone has somebody in their family that when they show up for a family function, you're like, oh, no. Please, dear Jesus, let them not show up. It's not that type of love. It's not just family love, because we put up with a lot of things in family. It it certainly isn't just kind of a collegiate type of love, which is the the Greek word phileo. It's not storga, the love of family. It's certainly not eros, which is physical or sexual love, primarily. It is agape. And that love is the love that put Jesus on the cross. That was love that was death to self and done solely for the purpose of others. 
Jesus did not go to the cross for himself, did he? He was sinless. In fact, the Apostle Paul took this so far as to say, to whom who knew no sin, he became sin that we might become the children of God. Jesus took on himself something that wasn't even his and died for you and me. That kind of love is the love that's in view here. That kind of love you're supposed to give to everybody because that's what Jesus did. And we call ourselves Christians or little Christs, amen? So if we're actually going to be representations of Jesus, then we're supposed to act like he acted, be as he was. It's going to have emotion attached to it most of the time, but it is mostly shown by what you do. This type of love is visible. It's responsive. You can see it. It's not something that somebody says, well, I love you. I've had people that I know actually do not like me tell me that they love me. You know how I know that? Instagram. Because <laughs> they're over on somebody else's page going, yeah, did you see the thing? Love you, bro. Well, why don't you not write the gnarly things on Instagram then? You or Facebook or whatever, you know, it's like, this, these are supposed Christians. You see, real love shows that it's real, does things that are loving. You cannot take love, God's love, and make it just an emotional response. That's why we were in Nicaragua. That's God's love. That's why our son and his wife, Brandon and Becca, just came back from Korea with an adopted orphan child. That is love. Love does. Love doesn't just seek and speak. Love does the right thing. That's the love that Christ has for us. That's why in 1 John chapter 4, there in verses 7 to 10, it says this, Beloved, Let us agapeo, agape, love, one another. For agape, love, love that's death to self, is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And he who does not, here it comes. There is no such thing as an unloving Christian. Bible says so. He who does not love does not know God. That's pretty pointed. For God is love. In other words, you can't claim to know God, to love God, to serve God, and not have love for other people. It's an impossibility. It's your new birthright. You've been born again into the family of God. That is the family of love. And so that includes people who don't like you, don't love you back, who've done very mean, horrible things. In this, notice, remember love does, in this is the love of God manifested towards us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but he loved us. 
and sent his son to be the propitiation, to take care of the debt, to pay the price for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, then so we should love one another. The unloving Christian is unthinkable to God. Uh, That's why when you see the mean-spirited legalists that run around ranting and raving about what isn't being done by a certain group or a part of the church, it's unloving. And if it's unloving, I don't care how true it is. The Bible says when you lack love, you are not representing the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, no matter how right you are. Amen? That's the church that's in the Bible, by the way. You can disagree with me all you want. The fact of the matter is, Scripture's on my side. The unloving church is not found in the Bible. The holier-than-thou church, also not found in the Bible. The legalistic, pointed, mean-spirited, nasty church is not found in the Bible. It is a church that loves even enemies. That's what's found in Scripture. So important that we get this because that's the way other people come to faith in Christ. Can I tell you that people aren't really all that attracted to mean-spirited and angry? Oh, they'll go and listen to political speech or they'll go and hear some words from somebody that agrees with their particular bent on things in the world. But when you catch somebody with stuff like that, you have to keep them with that. And that doesn't last long. The love of God lasts your lifetime. It'll always be the right thing. Always. It just will, church. People are attracted to being loved on. They're momentarily entertained by other things, but they're attracted to being loved on. We can't just love in terms of feeling. We have to love in action. King Philip of Spain was the bitter enemy of the Protestant Reformation. And he was famous. His reign was called the Reign of Terror. And his counsel with which he punished people who decided that they needed to get right with Jesus was called the Council of Terror. And a political prisoner that escaped, that prisoner managed to run quite a long ways before the pursuer that he sent out after him could catch him. He had made it across the lake. That lake was covered with ice, but it was very thin. And while the guy that had escaped was all the way out on the other side of the lake, he heard a scream from the middle. His pursuer, because he had on some armor, ended up crashing through the ice and was drowning. And he went back out to the middle of the lake and pulled his pursuer out. He could not let him die because he knew he didn't know the Lord. That man was re-imprisoned and killed. And he said as he was being put to death, I still loved the way Jesus loved. He could go to his grave that way. Church, I wonder how many of us passed that test. We are to be praying for our persecutors, not persecuting our persecutors. This is a, this is a place that I believe most of us can grow in. I know I can. Let me just... 
I'll, I'll personalize it. That's one of those areas that is very, very hard to do, but it is so effective. You know what's really crazy? When you start lifting up people who have persecuted you and hurt you before the throne of grace, you know what you get in your life? You get grace. You get mercy. You get love. You get kindness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. And against such things, the Apostle Paul was right, there is no law against love. But when you try and out-persecute somebody... Eventually, somebody's got to win and somebody's got to lose. And if somebody loses, you both lose. We're to pray for our persecutors. We may experience wickedness from them. We can't love people like that for what they are, but we can love them for who they are. They were created in the image of God, regardless of how mean-spirited they are. And they are deserving of the same mercy that we are deserving of. They're deserving of the same grace that we are worthy of. And so when you pray for people, you're praying for the thing that God wants for them. When you persecute them, God doesn't want persecution for you or them. So you're just joining them in a grand misadventure that will cause nothing but harm in your own life. So... Pray for people who persecute you. Don't try and win the persecution argument. You get unmasked in that situation by the Lord. Eventually, you're going to run out of ways that you can one-up them. And you're going to find it's a dead end. It just doesn't go anywhere. The devil wants you to stay on that track. Say, well, if I just do this to him, or I just say that about him, if I destroy their character... But I see something evil about them because they said something evil about me. The problem is you stay in bondage when you do that. You're going to suffer for it. And you know the crazy thing is? It almost never changes them. But your love will. We're to also make sure that the world knows... Notice it says there in verse 45 that you may become the sons of your Father who is in heaven. Jesus' example of this is your life. We are supposed to be in this world as Jesus wants for everyone. We're his representatives. Now that's a tall order, amen? Say amen. Because it's a tall order to represent Jesus in this world. If you're not struggling, come to my house. I'll give you some of mine. That's why Jesus said there in, in John 13, verse 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. That's the mark. That's the hardest of all of the characteristics of being a believer. Yes, we're supposed to walk in holiness. Yes, we're supposed to walk in righteousness. Yes, we're supposed to flee evil. Yes, we're supposed to do good. But the one mark that the whole world can see is that we love other people the way God loves us. And he loved me when I was a wreck. When I was a mess. He still loves us. Guess what, church? You may be a redeemed sinner. You might be a saved sinner, but you're still a sinner. And he still loves you even though you sin after you get saved. Amen? 
Aren't you glad that God loves you differently than what we love in the world, which is as long as you do nice things to me, I'm going to love you back? God keeps loving us even though we fail him miserably. Even though we say things that we shouldn't say and do things we shouldn't do. God doesn't look at you, well, you know. Aren't you glad God doesn't do that? Jeff, you're a failure. I don't want you anymore. You aren't what I expected. I don't want you anymore. You see, that's how the world responds. But my God loves me even in spite of my failures, my weaknesses, my sin. My disobedience. Is God going to cause you to repent? Is he going to chasten you? Yes. But he doesn't stop loving you. To the very end. The world can see that, church. That is a different kind of love. And it's very visible. truth is we should be better than unbelievers. You know the sad reality is? Notice verses 46 to 47. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? The world does that. Tax collectors do that. If you're here and you represent the IRS, I'm sorry. (laughs) Tax collectors can still do good things, amen? That's the point. Shouldn't we be better than people that don't know Jesus? We should be able to love people who don't love us back. Our conduct should be different than their conduct. Our love should be greater than their love. That's why Jesus said previously in this same passage of Scripture in chapter 5, Let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works. They'll be visible and they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's Jesus, church. To that end, as we close, we're to be just like our Heavenly Father. As much as we possibly can. And He loved His enemies. And still loves his enemies. And still loves you when you mess up. Still loves you when you're rebellious, mean-spirited, angry. You wake up on the wrong side of the bed and then you stub your toe. God's looking at you going, that's my kid. That's my son. That's my daughter. They may not be the sharpest tools in the shed, but they're the tools that are in my shed. And he loves us. We're supposed to be like him. And when we do, there's no answer for it. It's impossible with men. But with God, all things are possible. It boggles people's minds. You got a marriage problem? Try loving your spouse out of that problem. You got problems with your kids? Try loving them out of that problem. That doesn't mean you don't have standards. 
doesn't mean you don't set boundaries. It means that you always and forever act in love towards them. Always. Every word, every deed. I can tell you, if, if nothing changes, it will not be on you. We are to be like our Heavenly Father. That kind of love will cause you to love people that you don't even like. In a way that's tangible. In a way that's real. And that can change our world. Amen? Amen. Just stand and we'll close in prayer. Father, we pray. Lord, now as we pray, we even admit this is really hard, Lord. It's tough. I admit that. It is hard. It's difficult. But we know with you all things are possible. And so we pray that you transform us into an army of love, Lord, that just knows exactly how to love people the way you love them. Lord, help us to not persecute those who persecute us. Help us to love the unlovable. Lord, help us to reach out and be kind to people with whom we disagree. Help us to reach across fences and be neighborly. Lord, help us to get out of our comfort zones. Help us to live lives of love and action. We thank you, God, for what you've done to bring us to faith, and we pray that that faith would infect this world with your love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.